All right. I wrote in a little thingy. Did you guys see I'm going to ambush you with your own questions yes. at the end? I was like, Ooh, I didn't so prepare them so that that's good. Oh, yeah. I almost took it out and didn't send it to you, so it would like really be a surprise. But yeah, I was like, well, I'll be, I'll be nice. Stephanie's had a long week. I'll be nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's Friday, March 6th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Real Bookcase Owner, and with me today is Gordon Derrick, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Groningen Avoider. Our third regular podcast host, Molly Quell, isn't with us now, but she did pre-record an interview with uh, two of the podcast uh, great friends from the um, Asymmetrical Haircut yep. podcast. They did an interview on MH17. The yes. MH17 trial, which starts on Monday. Starts on Monday, believe. yeah, and it's well worth listening to. It's very informative and uh, quite entertaining as Indeed, well. Indeed, yeah. And, and, and Truby's involved. And Truby's involved, yes. very so much. another reason to listen. Another reason to live. And yeah. we're not there as well, so... Yeah. Um, but that's coming up after the news and uh, after you explain uh, your real bookcase ownership. Yeah, so uh, as we all know, uh, Hugo de Groot, a famous scholar and um, inventor of international law, at some point in his life he was imprisoned because of uh, some uh, historical uh, disputes yeah. I believe, and he was locked away in a castle in Slot Luverstein, mm-hmm. it's uh, somewhere here in the Netherlands, uh, but he managed to escape in a bookcase yes. because he, he was a scholar so he ordered uh, all sorts of books all yeah. the time and uh, whenever he finished reading them then they brought the bookcase uh, away and then they uh, gave him uh, some new books and at some point he thought I'm just gonna hide in this bookcase <laughs> and uh, they will uh, carry me out of this castle and mm-hmm. he managed to do that and he did it I think he fled to France but I'm, I'm not sure about yeah. that so why is he news? Um, so this bookcase is very famous and it was on display not in one museum, not in two museums, mm. but in three museums. Uh-huh. Uh, the Rijksmuseum, uh, Slot Louverstein, and the Prinsenhof yeah. here in Delft, they all claimed that they had the original bookcase. And now finally this uh, television show um, did some final research on this and yeah. they concluded that the bookcase here in Delft is the one that... It's uh, a genuine bookcase. It's, it's a real bookcase. Right. Yeah. So if you want to see Hugo de Groot's bookcase, uh, you have to come to Delft. And Gordon, you are avoiding Groningen. Why is that? <laughs> but actually, I like Groningen. <laughs> I like the city of Groningen very much. But apparently I've re- read an interesting theory by a Swiss linguist who said that um, people who speak kind of guttural languages like Dutch uh, are more <laughs> at risk of spreading coronavirus because obviously you, you distribute more saliva as you speak. <laughs> and obviously in Groningen there is a particular issue. If you've ever been to Groningen and spoken to people, you know the Dutch D is especially hard and rasping in, in Groningen. Uh, in Groningen and yeah. I, if you factor in that and the fact that uh, the Vindicat students <laughs> from Groningen yeah. have all been in northern Italy this week and they're coming back to the Netherlands, I think, today, Friday? Today, I think, yes. Yeah, yeah, um, so 900 students who've just been in Italy and speaking with Gronia accents, <laughs> it's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> That's true. So I think for yeah, the time being, yeah, much yeah. as I love the place, and I think it's a super smashing city, if you haven't been there, go and visit, but not right now. Or, or go right now because just well, yeah. like Venice and exactly, Florence yeah. and Rome, Rome, all these cities are, That's true. are there's nobody there. Yeah, so no, no queues for Martini Tour. No queues the for the Martini Tour, <laughs> no queues for the St. Peter's yeah. Basilica. So it's either so. one of two ways. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Coronavirus, of course, also brings us nicely onto the OPEF of the week. Bob. Yes, yes, because it's unavoidable that the OPEF of the week uh, is about coronavirus. Because next to the official channels, such as the RVM and the NOS and all these other news outlets, there are also a number of amateur journalists who start to keep track of 
from the corona outbreak and how it is spreading over the country and how and over the world and they share this information uh, on Twitter and this information is not always as true as you want it to be mm. there is this one Twitter account in particular that stood out um, it's called uh, Corona Nederland and it's claimed to give live updates on both the national and international developments regarding the virus and it also had a WhatsApp tip line which people could uh, contact if they uh, had some information uh, which they wanted to share and initially this account shared some reliable and real information on the virus they were very up to date so it became quite popular it mm. uh, it reached over 5000 uh, followers but later it started to uh, tweet more and more about unconfirmed corona cases citing its own anonymous sources and at some point on Wednesday it yeah. claimed that nine people in Breda had died after they were infected by coronavirus this was of course totally false and mm-hmm. the account was accused of spreading fake news and this was sort of confirmed when someone started to google search this whatsapp number which they were sharing the yeah. tip line and it led to uh, an account on Marktplaats the Dutch eBay which sold a corona face mask for 275 ah, euros. Ah, so that so, was the answer to the mystery. The answer yeah, to the mystery. Yeah. Almost immediately after this revelation, <laughs> the account was taken down and we're not hearing from them anymore. So, no, yeah, they were yeah. just spreading fake they news. They were spreading fake news, spreading panic spread- so they could sell um, these face masks Indeed. for exorbitant sums. This week, we update you on the latest real corona news. We will tell you why the Blastingdienst is on the fire again mm. and uh, why you might want to avoid stepping on your bike after an evening in the pub. After the break, we have Molly interviewing our good friends Janet Anderson and Stephanie van der Berg from the Asymmetrical Haircut podcast on the MH17 trial, which starts next week. The number of coronavirus infections in the Netherlands has more than doubled to 82, Health Minister Bruno Bruins confirmed on Thursday afternoon. The cause of the sharp rise is likely to be a catch-up effect as people who realize or suspect they may be infected come forward and register, the minister said during a debate on the crisis in parliament. The spike is in line with the expectations of the Public Health Institute RIVM. One new measure being implemented by the government is to centralize the distribution of face masks and other protective equipment to hospitals and healthcare institutions, Bruins said. The aim of the central distribution point is to stop shortages emerging in some areas while others have larger stockpiles, so everything is basically going to Groningen. Yes. Anyone returning from a high-risk area and who develops breathing problems should stay home and monitor how the complaint develops, Brown said. It is not possible to test anyone with breathing issues for coronavirus, he said, and we have to be prudent in the way we are using our doctors and hospitals. The Dutch Hospital Association has also drawn up new rules for medical staff who come into contact with corona patients or who have been in high-risk areas such as northern Italy. This follows the news that several healthcare workers have been infected with the virus by patients who were not aware they were carriers. I guess the thing is, for a lot of people, especially if you're kind of young and reasonably healthy, it's quite a mild infection, so you don't realise you've got the virus until you've already given it to somebody else. Um, And also, as we mentioned earlier, of course, there's been some ophef about the uh, Findicat uh, students uh, going to northern Italy. Yes, because they travelled to Italy for a skiing trip with a small uh, party of 900 members of the Groningen Students Association Findicat. They went to Italy this Despite the major outbreak of corona in northern Italy, yeah. uh, the students left last Saturday and because of the OPEF they have decided to return to the Netherlands a day ahead of schedule. On Tuesday the government issued official advice recommending against all travel to northern Italy unless strictly necessary. This issue came after they have already left yeah. uh, to Italy. Although there is no medical need or reason to be concerned, we have decided to take no chances. 
the association said in a statement, yeah. which is a lie because they already knew that yeah. a lot of people in northern Italy were exactly. affected. Exactly, there was already quite a wide outbreak at that point. Yeah, yeah, so there was a chance that they would get the virus there as well. The students will return from Italy in 21 specially commissioned buses. Yeah, uh, so it will be a corona convoy. <laughs> it's a corona convoy of uh, Vindicat students. <laughs> I think we shouldn't take any chances here and we should just quarantine all Vindicat members for the next five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> yeah, uh, Urk? No, Urk is not an island anymore. Uh, Rottemerplatt. Rottemerplatt. Yeah, that's in Groningen, so yeah, yeah exactly. that's, uh, it's not that's convenient. Yeah, then just get a boat. Yeah. Uh, I have to say much as I'm uh, reluctant to defend Vindicat here, their skiing trip was in Sestriere, which is right on the border with France and it was about, I think, 100 kilometres from the nearest corona infection Ah, so Charleston okay. being infected is not that high. On the other hand, they knew about it. They even produced a video, if you've seen online, <laughs> about how empty it was in Italy and what is, why, why it's such a great time to travel there. So they can't use the excuse that they weren't aware of uh, how big the problem was because that was their kind of selling point for the whole ski trip. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, you could go to Italy now because there's nobody there. You, you, you can have the whole place you to You must yourselves. go now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> even though there are 900 people there, so I, I'm not sure if it's pretty crowded there if they're going there with 900 people, but yeah. nonetheless. And also I have to say that Bruno Brown's really um, likes to give these uh, announcements uh, uh, on the on the coronavirus on live television. Yeah, he always makes a point of doing that, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah last week uh, we recorded the podcast on Thursday and yeah. on Thursday evening was this special broadcast on coronavirus yeah. and it was at the end of that broadcast that uh, Bruno Brands announced that we had the first corona patient here in the Netherlands. It was almost like a TV <laughs> talent show when, when you reveal it's who won. It's a big won. reveal at the end. Yeah, it, yeah. In, indeed. And now the announcement that the uh, number of corona patients has doubled was also on live television but in his defence it was in Parliament yes. so it wasn't on an official Yeah, uh, he was stage. actually uh, doing his job at the time The Dutch tax service is under fire once again this time over a so-called blacklist of individuals and companies suspected of fraud The list, which was compiled over 20 years contained details of more than 180,000 people and businesses who were under scrutiny the details were shared with other government agencies, such as the Social Insurance Bank, SVB, which supervises the payment of benefits. In some cases, it led to people being denied the chance to apply for support, such as childcare funding, so they couldn't go back to work. The individuals affected weren't informed they were on the list and had no way of challenging their inclusion. Also, much of the information was inaccurate. People were added to the list even though there was no evidence they'd done anything wrong, for example, because a suspicious neighbour had reported them to the tax office. <laughs> and the list wasn't systematically um, kept up to date. So some, in some case, people's names were kept on it for years, even though they hadn't actually done anything. An internal report by the Finance Ministry recommended an overhaul of the entire system, and after constant pressure and um, questions from two media organisations, Trau and RTL News, they eventually um, pulled the plug on it uh, about a month ago. Uh, the report said there is a big chance that some of those involved were unfairly or disproportionately labelled as high-risk cases. So we have two new ministers now who are in yeah. charge of the Blasting Deans. They were appointed a couple of, uh, I think, a month ago or something. Yeah. Um, and uh, 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 what are they saying about this? Yeah, Alexander von Hufler and Hans Feilbrief uh, took over following the resignation of Menno Snell uh, in December as junior finance minister. Um, and they were both um, uh, called to Parliament on Thursday uh, for an update on the situation. Feilbrief uh, said he'd already found several skeletons in the cupboard, uh, such as the fact that that 266,000 people had been given tax demands for more money than they actually owed. 
Uh, Van Hoofler, mm. who was also called before MPs on Thursday, mentioned the child benefit scandal. This is, of course, when um, parents were, in, were denied childcare support or ordered to pay it back, um, even when they hadn't actually done anything wrong, uh, suspected or suspect they were suspected of fraud without evidence. Uh, Van Hoofler said it was a, something to be deeply ashamed of and pledged to repair the damage as quickly as possible. And when you add in problems with personnel, IT, unaccountable managers, and uh, it's fair to say we can expect a lot more bloodletting at the Blustingdienst uh, in the coming months. A young wolf was found dead in the Veluwe nature area after it was hit by a car on Wednesday morning. The driver had alerted the police who used a specialist uh, hunting dog to track the wounded animal. The wolf, which was about one years old, is thought to be part of uh, the litter of wolves born last year in the area. At least five wolves are known to be living in the Netherlands at the end of 2019. Since 2015, 16 wolves have been spotted in the country, all of which got their own live blog. Another live blog. Another live yeah. blog. <laughs> yes, if there's something that we love, it's it's a live blog. There's, there's, we'll, there's something that Dutch journalists really going for, it's live blogs. Yes, yeah. and then one of the next stories will be on the Eurovision song. And when yes. I was re- reading about that, I, I, I stumbled upon three live blogs uh, <laughs> On the revelation of his new song so <laughs> if there's something that the dutch love it's a live blog yep. so we need we just need a live blog which live keeps track of all the live blogs absolutely yeah um going back to the wolves uh, <laughs> four of them were killed in traffic uh, in uh, in the past years uh, three settled in the failure area of which two had cubs two went to belgium and four went back to germany uh, wolves do have a protective status here in the Netherlands, but despite measures to compensate farmers for the loss of animals, their return remains controversial. I want to ask you a question. What do you mm. think that the damage of wolves was in the past year? The damage uh, actually um, committed by wolves, yeah. and, 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 as in the cost. The cost. The damage of wolves. Yeah. I imagine it was something like 10,000 euros. It was exactly 10,000 euros. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, well done, well done. <laughs> One in four people over the age of 55 has admitted getting on a bike after having too many drinks. That's according to a survey by traffic safety organisation N, which says that although people in that age group are no less safe than other road users, they accounted for two-thirds of the 228 cyclists who died last year. Drinking and cycling is far more socially acceptable than drink driving, with a quarter of people saying they'd pedalled home from a night out after consuming more than two drinks, compared to um, 90% who said they would never uh, get behind the wheel of a car if they were over the limit. Fefe N director Evert Jan Hulshoff warned that older cyclists were more vulnerable because of their deteriorating eyesight and reaction times, and the growing use of e-bikes was putting them at even greater risk. Our advice is zero alcohol when cycling, he said. Um, yeah, did you uh, ever step on a bike with too much beer? Uh, yes, of course. So of did course. you? Yeah, it's it, it carnival just ended. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> In fact, more to the point, how many uh, how many times you've actually said, "I'm going out uh, tonight. I'm going to have a few drinks, so I'll take the bike." Yeah, every time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's what time. people do. Yeah. yeah, I was once stopped in Delft um, in the middle of the night uh, by a police officer a police car and they they told me that i should uh, step from my bike because i had uh, too much beer yeah. uh, so i did that and uh, when they um, went across the corner then i immediately stepped back on my bike yeah. but it was on a canal so as so the 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 police car drove to the other side but they uh, drove over a bridge and then uh, came back to me on the other side and uh-huh. then they spotted me again so the they gave me a final warning i must now step from my bike and not uh, cycle not back any on. further uh, Otherwise, I would be fined. So wow. that was the only they, time they, that that, yeah. uh, that had yeah. happened to me. And they still didn't give you an on-the-spot fine? No. Did, did they test you? 
No, they didn't test right. me. They just decided they could tell. They could, yeah, they could tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, were, were they it right? Was very clear. They were yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Th- I mean, th- they do occasionally do uh, spot checks of cyclists, but cyclists don't like it, and they give them a lot of hassle because people. It, it, it's kind of the, oh. um, yeah. Th- 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 I always think that um, the it's right. It's a drunk cycle revolution. It is. Well, I, I always kind of think you know the the the, uh, the, the Dutch attitude of bikes is that no one should interfere with a Dutchman on his bicycle. It's, oh, kind no, of, it's, it's like the Dutch equivalent yeah. of the Second Amendment <laughs> in the States. It really is. <laughs> you know. As soon as you try and do yeah. anything to curb the use of bicycles, people get in a rage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> uh, if there is a, a, a even things like, you know, or, or something, then, yeah. then everybody will just keep cycling. Yeah, or, even, or, or trying to tell people that uh, wearing a helmet might be a good idea. You know, could, could that's not a good idea. Absolute outcry. Sorry, Ben, it's not a good idea. Yeah. And is there an actual law? Uh, on drinking and cycling. Yes, because uh, it's the same legal limit as uh, applies to a car. So uh, legally, you should not get on a bike if you've had more than two drinks or if you have a blood alcohol level of more than 0.05%. Um, and, and, but of course uh, police can give you a hundred uh, euro fine if they find you're over the limit of course they can't take your license away because you don't need <laughs> a driving license to ride a bike yeah that's a plus sign so. the Netherlands entry for this year's Eurovision Song Festival is being described as not a traditional song contest entry and a gospel song uh, and uh, someone also said it is having the zap away factor ouch yeah, yeah. Um, so people don't like it well, some people don't. Uh, uh, I think, generally speaking, it's uh, received quite positively, okay. and then there's always one or two who didn't, who don't like the song. Yeah. "Grow" is the song sang by uh, Jean Gu McCoy, um, and it was formally presented during the De Wereldrijd Door talk show early on Wednesday evening. But uh, it was put on Apple streaming service by mistake on Wednesday morning for a short while. Oof. Was there what piff about that? Uh, a little bit. Uh, Someone okay. recorded it with his phone and then yeah. um, put it on. I think it was Geenstel. Right. So they had the, um, they had the they had the scoop. They had the scoop. Yeah. Um, emotions, good and bad, are a universal language. I hope this song makes people feel a little less lonely in the search of happiness. That yes. sounds like suitably vacuous uh, yeah. for Eurovision. <laughs> That's <laughs> what uh, Jean Gu said uh, <laughs> about his song. Uh, the Netherlands is hosting uh, this Eurovision Song Contest in May um, after Duncan Lawrence won last year with Arcade, uh, which was uh, I actually was 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 received in a similar way when yeah. when it was first um, released. People thought well this is a very atypical Eurovision Song Contest um, uh, some thought this might win others mm-hmm. thought this this will definitely not win but um, uh, gradually as uh, uh, as we were coming near to the to the actual Eurovision Song Contest uh, people seem to be yeah. appreciating it much more and more I think people have a too narrow definition of what is a likely Eurovision winner because when you look at the winners um, over the last sort of decade or so it's quite a wide range of musical styles it is a huge uh, yeah. wide, wide range it's in, hard indeed. to tell yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. very often just what catches the catch catch the mood in that particular year. It's uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a little bit of luck. It's also yeah. quality. What 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 uh, what is winning more and more? Uh, well, that's not entirely true because the Israeli song that won the year before <laughs> that was truly awful in <laughs> it my was opinion. Dreadful, yeah. uh, it was very dreadful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in it is it's definitely a trend in in at least the Dutch uh, entries uh, in the past year, which is. Um, yeah, more quality. Yeah, and, more uh, kind of musical uh, quality. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm still uh, backing Belgium this year. 
because um, yeah. they're being represented by Hooverphonic, who I think are a genuinely good band. Well, so, traditionally, yeah. the Netherlands is always uh, <laughs> voting for uh, giving 12 yes. points to yeah, Belgians. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, um, and, and now they will deserve it, apparently. Yeah. Um, and this, I didn't know that, but uh, song festival expert uh, Michiel Sampon told RTL News that normally the host country submits a weakest song so they don't win two years in a row. I didn't know that that was a thing, but mm-hmm. apparently it is. Um, and uh, he thinks that uh, the broadcaster Afro Tros runs a minor risk that this might just happen. So he's uh, he's positive about yeah. the song. Uh, nevertheless, one worry is the slow start of the song, Samson said. It is a difficult sort of music and you have to listen to the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what he means with that, but <laughs> yeah, you have to listen to the full five minutes. And no, it's uh, it's a maximum of three minutes and That's ten say, seconds. Yeah. So the, the, all these songs are really short. Yeah. But yeah, he, it is true. I think the the first two and a half minutes or so are really slow, and then it will gradually grow. Then to it picks a, up. Uh, then yeah, then it picks up. I have to say, um, the live version in the Real Red Door was much better than the uh, YouTube version. I thought. All right. So um, yeah, I was already much more positive yeah. when I heard the. The, well, that's the encouraging in uh, on the real right door. Okay. Well, good luck to Jiangyu anyway. Yes. Yeah. The hangover continues for Ajax as last season's all-conquering club surrendered their lead in the Eredivisie and were knocked out of the Canfei Bay Cup in the space of four days. Despite the return of Hakim Ziyech and Quincy Promes to the first team, the Amsterdammers went down 2-0 at home to AZ Alkmaar, who thereby drew level on points with them at the top of the league, and then lost by the same scoreline in the cup to Utrecht. And after they went out of the Europa League last week to Gaddafi, the Eredivisie is all Ajax have left to play for this season. I, I kept hearing Gaddafi. I thought they were, <laughs> were playing in Libya, but yeah. apparently they're not. Feyenoord squandered a chance to move within four points of the leaders as they went 1-0 up away to PSV Eindhoven, but they conceded an equaliser early in the second half. That ended a run of seven straight wins in the league for Dick Advocaat's side, but they will be in the cup final after they ended NRC Breda's giant-killing run in emphatic style, beating the Brabant club 7-1 in the semi-final. What did uh, Erik ten Hag have to say about his team's uh, performance? He was in the defensive mode, uh, insisted he still had the support of the players uh, and there was still the team spirit against Utrecht. Uh, midfielder Donny van der Beek said the problems were caused by a number of factors, not down to one single thing. Uh, the newspapers though, were less charitable. The Telegraph said ten Hag's future was now in doubt after they lost five league matches since December and, as we said, have been knocked out of both European competitions and the domestic cup. The Volkskrant said Ajax has suffered a total collapse and become a pitiable team that creates few chances and rarely scores and NRC was even more blunt saying that the sons of gods of last season that first one of Ajax's nicknames were now dying men so hmm. a club in yeah. crisis a club in crisis and a very quick and, and, um, yeah, and, and, and a very sudden crisis as well it seemed to be going quite well for them up until about you know November and then they were 4-1 they were up against Chelsea in the Champions League and then they had that bizarre double sending off Ended up conceding three goals, and it's all gone downhill from there. So I actually reverse Joe Biden. Kind of, yeah, 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 in many ways. Molly will be interviewing our good friends from the Asymmetrical Haircut podcast, Janet Anderson and Stephanie van der Beer, after this word from our sponsors. Hey, you. Yes, you listening to this podcast for free. We're really glad you like all of our Ophef coverage and our dick lawyer jokes, but it costs money to bring them to your ears. 
If you have a few extra bucks and you would like to support the work that we do, you can now back us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl to donate. We will give a shout out to all of our backers on the podcast. If you donate 50 euros, Gordon will dedicate the next podcast to his love of lavender strope waffles. For 75 euros, I will suffer through one entire football match. For the low, low price of only 100 euros, Paul will vote for the Socialist Party in the next election. So please go to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl to support us and to keep Truby fed. His dog food is extremely expensive. On July 17th, 2014, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 took off from Amsterdam en route to Kuala Lumpur. It was shot down over eastern Ukraine, killing all 283 passengers and 15 crew on board. Next Monday, the trial of four men who allegedly played a role in this tragedy will start at the high security courthouse at Schiphol. In lieu of our usual discussion, today I'm talking to the co-hosts of Asymmetrical Haircuts, the world's foremost podcast on international justice. Woo! They, <laughs> they brand themselves as two journalists, one haircut, tons of opinions on international justice. So here with me today are Janet Anderson, a former radio producer at the BBC World Service and the founder of Justice Connection, a communications company that focuses on accountability mechanisms, and Stephanie van den Berg, a journalist for Reuters who covers international justice. So welcome to the studio, guys. Thank oh, you. Really, what a studio. Isn't it nice? It's we really like nice. our little studio. Yeah. So I, I have a question now about your haircuts, because you say you have two journalists, one haircut, but now that Stephanie has dyed her hair pink, are you also going to be doing that, Janet? Um, I have been known in the past to have pink, purple, and blue oh. uh, pink tails coming down with feathers and beads, but no. But I'm no, not planning no. to return to my uh, post-punk personality <laughs> oh, of that's, the uh, that's late too 1980s. Bad. I would have I enjoyed that. Are there I, photos of this haircut somewhere? There are, but I did cut it off ceremoniously and, uh, and removed all of the blonde um, sort of uh, stuff in the front when I joined the BBC. Oh, of course, you must have. Uh, uh, well, I decided not to be that girl. That at girl. The BBC. Okay, yeah. it's that one with the pigtails. The, the one with the pigtails. The one who fitted in a bit more. Ah, well, we have to get a picture and put it up on our Twitter then. Yeah, now I'm curious. I want to see. I'll put up a picture of my pink hair, which is not as rebellious and there's no feathers. and No, but and it does look very nice. It yeah. does look lovely. It's, it really suits you. Yeah. yeah. So I think a lot about this investigation and the trial in particular is very confusing to the average person. People, when I tell them, are like very confused that you're going to this trial and this kinds of stuff. So I just have to say, in this context, I regard myself as an average person. <laughs> so I suspect that I may actually be asked Asking some of the questions as well. That's I good. Yesterday, googling in Dutch and English, yeah. thinking, "Oh my God, how am I going to answer Molly's <laughs> questions?" Because I think for the average person, it's like it's so it's, it's really confusing. Really confusing. Yeah. So I'm looking towards Stephanie. Yeah, Stephanie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, the reason we we need Stephanie. That's that's what we need. <laughs> I, I, I'm just a fellow traveler. In this oh God. And, well, I, and I spent yesterday also looking at the image seventeen. To how am I going to explain? This? Yeah. No, no, we are. Experts, yeah, yeah, experts, and it's very, very serious experts. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that when I was putting the questions together. That sort of like, there's a lot of practical questions, and then I have a kind of like some philosophical questions about like, yeah, sort of the impact of this trial for on the perspective of international justice. That I'm hoping, I mean, because I know that you guys talk a lot about that kind of stuff on your podcast. That hopefully we can get into. But let's start with some of the practical things. So maybe Stephanie, you can just start by telling us who are these four suspects. And are they going to be there on Monday? Oh, oh, I could do oh, that. Oh, you could do yes. this one? I can't tell their names, but I could tell you that there are four of them, as far as I know. Yes. And Thank you. And three of them are Russian from within uh, intelligence services, and one is Ukrainian and was, you know, a guy in charge. So we're not going to butcher their four names, but like you said, there's three Russians and one Ukrainian. And do we know if they're going to appear on Monday? Are they going to be in court? 
I think that they won't. Okay. Um, we don't know for 100% for sure, but some have already said on, in Russian media that they're not going to show up. Uh, one apparently has engaged a law firm, but the Dutch courts are kind of saying, yes, the law firm uh, showed up. But until they actually show up on Monday with the right paper saying they can represent this client, they can't say for sure that they're going to be there. That so, they're going to be there. So Monday is going to be what they call a stock-taking exercise. And one of the most important questions is going to be, who's going to show up yeah. of the people who are indicted? But I think in general, we're not expecting any of the four to be there personally. And maybe we'll see an attorney representing one of them, maybe. Exactly. Well, yeah. Even an attorney representing one of them suggests some kind of engagement yeah. with the court, doesn't it? So that would be a step up from, for example, the, the, the example that's in my mind is the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, mm -hmm. which is also trials in absentia, and each of the different suspects have counsel essentially appointed to them. They've never spoken to the suspects. They don't. They've never interviewed them. They, they're just appointed by the court. So, if a lawyer shows up, it would be a huge win for the Dutch prosecutors because that's what they want. That's a yeah. part of the reason to have this trial and also maybe to push to have it quick is to have this engagement. And the fact that there is some engagement even through a lawyer is actually more than I expected. Yeah. So, so I hope that somebody will show up, and we're going to see the defense, which is going to be interesting as well. So um, the Dutch in the Dutch criminal system, it's like not unusual to have trials in absentia. I think in a lot of other legal systems, I mean, in the US, you can't have those in a lot of other countries, it's not allowed. So maybe can you one of you just tell me a little bit about how you try someone in absentia, why they're moving forward with this process, even though they don't have these four suspects? I think it's a very, uh, the idea of trying people in absentia, it's quite usual. I tried to look at the figures of how many uh, we call it in for stick, uh, by for stick for order and there were in the Netherlands and you can't find figures for it but it's really usual the way it works in the Netherlands is um, you don't have to be present uh, at your own trial you can send a lawyer then it's not in absentia right. if you're not there but the lawyer's there then still uh, it's it's the procedure the way it's supposed to be and, and it's considered that you speak through your lawyer. If you're not there at all, you can have in absentia trials because uh, not like the common law system, the Dutch is an inquisitorial or civil law system, which means that the idea is that the judges investigate to get the truth and yeah. not that you have two competing narratives and the judge is in like an independent uh, arbiter but that the judge investigates everything and the prosecution investigates everything and therefore you can kind of have a fair trial without a defense. Yeah, in the in the Dutch system, the concept is not so much that it's kind of like the prosecutor against the defense attorney, but that the sort of prosecution is supposed to do a lot of this investigation. The judges are supposed to ask a lot of questions and that the defense is supposed to present the kind of the best possible light for their client. But it's not necessarily that like in theory, sort of in the in the ideal situation, it's not necessarily that like you have a prosecutor who's sort of. Uh, attempting to kind of portray the evidence only on their side versus the defense attorney who's only supposed to be portraying it on yeah. their side. That's that's the theory. That's the right? theory. But Molly, you and I both come from. Um, yeah, it law seems absurd, right? Where, <laughs> where it is totally uh, two oppositional right. sides, and that's it. Um, and in fact, quite a lot of the world works that way. Yeah. It's what we're used to in films and movies, yeah. for example, because yeah. the law and order and yeah. of English language right. stuff. So this is going to look 
weird. Very to weird. Of, to most of the rest of the world, yeah. but apart from yeah. a few French people but yeah. and a few Dutch people yeah. and a few, you know, of your your colonial yeah. past. You people. Well, we'll see it, okay. But the rest of us are going to say, this makes WTF. no sense. Yeah. No, but even as a Dutch person, because I was raised very much on, you know, law and order and, uh, and all these things and LA law. Uh, the first time, and, and then I went to international courts and did that uh, and reported on that. So Which the first is time, it's a mix of, the, a mix of, of system. the systems, but it's very, you know, it's very similar for the prosecution and the, and the defense. The first time I went to a Dutch case, I was also like, "What the heck is this?" Yeah. Because it's it's very strange. There, in a sense, um, there are not not a lot of witnesses present their evidence in court. It's all done through an investigative judge. So the kind of witness testimonies that you'll have is just the judge reading from this thing. And so you don't get people live in court to testify. Uh, you can only hear the stuff that the, that the judge picks out or the prosecution or the defense. And so it's very, very different than, than even what I was used to. And it makes it a lot shorter, yeah. which is handy, but it also makes it a lot less transparent if you're following it because if you don't have all the pieces and you don't know the entire testimony it's hard to you know you can't say what somebody picks out well that's my next question okay janet janet's going rogue she's now asking the questions (laughs) i just want to ask about what evidence we're going to expect because i've been following the bellingcat uh podcasts for example from uh on mh17 where the open source information is all laid out there everything we know openly um which is essentially where i've got all of my information for what more would I would you expect to see at this trial? Have you got any insights, either of you? I mean, we've we've downloaded the indictment from the special yeah, special yes. secure mailbox. What does it say? Well, I, I think first, let's say so. After the shooting down of this airplane, there was a what they're calling a joint investigative team, the JIT. This was led by the Dutch, um, in particular, the Dutch safety, what do they call it to hear no, this? That's, there's, there's two separate investigations. Okay. There's a Dutch safety board investigation, which is completely technical, is what caused the crash. Yeah. And then, so they established the crash was caused by a rocket being shot. But then this is a separate criminal investigation by the joint investigation team that goes into criminal responsibility. So they are answering who shot that thing. Yeah. And that was Australia, Malaysia, with the Belgian, Dutch, Belgium, uh, and but, but Ukraine. Because yeah. these were the countries whose nationalities were, were on the plane. In yes. some sense. Yeah. And then on top of that, we've also had this thing called Bellingcat. Since you just mentioned oh, it, sorry. maybe you can tell us a little bit about what um, Bellingcat is and why you're sort of oh, reading yeah. their information. Um, uh, a group of independent open source investigative journalists um, work all over the world, um, actually have come to um, reside in The Hague, yes. Yay! Yeah. Um, led by Elliot Higgins, um, focus of enormous amount of Russian trolls because yeah. of the kinds of things they investigate. But MH17 was the first thing that, I mean, Elliot Higgins had a life before this, but then Bellingcat was... Um, the MH17 was the first thing that Bellingcat as a collective got its teeth into. Um, so they've spent how many years? Four years? Five years? on Something on, like that, yes. Yeah. Really trying to tease out all of the details. Um, they gave their information to the YIT, JIT, the YIT, 
Yeah, um, I don't know the jit. Yeah. Depends on if you're using a Dutch J yeah. or not. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm curious to see is, is there more beyond this open source stuff? Because you can imagine that a joint investigative team with police resources, with intelligence sources, with all kinds of other things must have some other stuff. Well, the, what happened with so Bellingcat is a lot about geolocating and, and uh, recognizing where video images come from. And one of the things that they've done is they've tracked like which uh, rocket probably shot down the plane and then they tracked where it the, came the from book with launcher. the book launcher, the book tailor launcher, <laughs> which came from uh, allegedly from a Kursk base in Russia. And they have all this social media pictures of the convoy and they could say that this is the book because there's like a letter missing here and it's missing in this thing and they're super like specific. Yeah. And the JIT, so the uh, Bellingcat revealed that and then the JIT had to go over it and all the prosecutors because it's a different kind of evidence. And then a year and a half later, they basically said essentially the same thing. So that mostly everything that Bellingcat took, the JIT took as well and showed that they also feel that this is the book tailor. So we're going to see a lot of video evidence and communications evidence, which is all very technical. But um, Dutch newspapers also say that sources in the investigation said there will be 13 witnesses yeah. and that's going to be interesting we don't know what these witnesses are some are also going to testify uh, anonymously, anonymously. Right? Yeah. and um, they are the kind of people that will probably say yes this guy was in charge of the convoy or yes you know they called and they wanted okay. the book and that kind of information I'm expecting because based on the type of suspects we have now those are namely the, the trial is starting with the people who basically got the book to Ukraine yeah because from my experience in covering international criminal justice, um, you look at several different types of witnesses. You look at victim witnesses, um, you look at insider witnesses, people who were inside the the grouping in some way, who had knowledge of who said what to whom, what because you have to try and get the kind of the mental element with a crime of what were the plans that were going, not just what happened, but who was planning what, who actually wanted to make what happen and then you have your expert witnesses people who say you know this this amount of ballistics and that kind of hole and this is this is what it makes so are you saying you think that stephanie are you saying you think the 13 are mainly insiders i think it will be about half half if i have if there's only 13 i think about half would be probably technical uh witnesses because the judges uh unless they're suddenly super sophisticated computer nerds, which usually judges aren't. They're not. They need a lot of explanation about how this kind of geolocation works and yeah. how you cannot fake these images and all that yeah. stuff, which is, of course, all, what the defense is all. If there's a defense, that's you're going to mount that, that this image isn't correct, blah, blah, blah. And I think there's going to be also insider witnesses to show the chain of command, who is linked to who and who is whose boss, so who is really responsible, and who knew what at what time. So I'm, I'm expecting both. So these witnesses, they're, as far as we know, they're not named, and some of them are going to be testifying anonymously. Does that mean they're going to just, what, like appear in court with like a voice distortion and like a screen? Or do you, do you have any understanding of how that process works? There's kind of two ways. In, in a lot of Dutch trials, the witnesses never actually appear. They are interviewed by the investigative judge. And then, you know, if you have an interview with an investigative judge, it's, it's recorded there. And then the defense can be there and the prosecution can be there and they can both ask questions. So it could very well be that we just have the presiding judge read out from this testimony and keeping them shielded that way where you don't name names and you don't use their face or body. It could be that, you know, conscious of the international glare of the media, they want to present these people in open court. And then uh, looking at what is happening in that other big Dutch um, 
uh, Tachi trial. The Tachi trial. Yeah. They have screens and distorted voices. So the distorted that, voice thing is very strange. As so, somebody who sat through two days of this last yeah, week, yeah, I think I saw. Um, I think I saw uh, Dutch articles about Darth Vader. Darth the, Vader voice. Yeah, yeah, just like sort of disembodied. Like it's very, yeah. it's very so strange. I assume. I is, again, what we're used to yeah. in, in international criminal justice trials, yeah. where you know, uh, particularly a lot of the victims uh, need to have their yeah. uh, their identities fully protected, which can also go as far as relocating people yeah. out of danger in particular countries so that they can then uh, testify a bit more freely. So maybe you can answer this question, Janet. So in a lot of the trials that we see going on at, say, the International Criminal Court, for example, um, there are lots of witnesses, and presumably many of those witnesses also want to testify anonymously. They come from places where the people are testifying against soft power, soft support. How does that work in terms of the defense being able to sort of interrogate these people if you're in testifying anonymously. So we presume that the defense will know who the witnesses are if there is a defense, if they mount a defense? Um, it's the right of uh, the defense to know exactly who is who in at, at a place like the International Criminal Court. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the right of the defense to be able to ask questions of, of people um, at the court itself. It is also the right, though, of the witnesses to have a level of protection that is needed that is agreed by the judges what level of protection is needed. There's a special unit that provides um, services to both prosecution and defence, you know, because it could also be a defence witness who needs protection and that they will work for both. Um, It's one of those things that people get a bit hung up on because the idea of defence knowing who who is there, it, it, it is a tough yeah. idea because then you think, well, surely they could interfere in the trial, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's why you have professional lawyers yeah. working on this. And there have been allegations at uh, the ICC which have gone to trial and have been, been agreed by judges that there has been interference with witnesses at different times. It's one of the issues that they have to deal with. Um, I must say the kind of defence lawyers that Stephanie and I interview are the kind of people who, you know, you can't imagine in a month of Sundays yeah. that they would do something like that. Because yeah. these are fully, you know, they, they are top of the range people who know exactly what, what, what they are doing. So I mean, it's not like every defence is exactly like every defence. No, and I know, I mean, I know here uh, in case, for the MH17 case, uh, lawyers that... Uh, present, represent uh, uh, suspects have to be uh, members of the Dutch bar. Yeah. They can work with people of other bars, but you cannot have like somebody in the Ukrainian bar. But you would be disbarred yeah. for doing that and, and like run out of the country. Exactly. I think. So, so they would. I mean, it would be a huge uh, problem for their livelihood and their entire careers if yeah. they do that. So, I think what you will see in Dutch courts is that they do get names and things, and then they can do their own investigation. And the question then is, do they tell their clients, clients. the name and what do the clients do with yeah. that? And uh, I think that's also probably something that, that, that uh, lawyers weigh. Uh, but, but also, I would just say as journalists, we also have to be able to put on those that other hat of being able to say the people who are on trial really deserve a fair trial. Yeah. Um, overwhelmingly in the Netherlands, I mean, there is no person in the Netherlands who does not think that this, this was a terrible thing that happened 
I would suspect practically everybody in the Netherlands thinks, yeah, Russia in some form is involved, um, apart from a few people who think conspiratorially. I mean, the Dutch, the Dutch government officially said that Russia, yeah, Russia, Russia is the fault of this. Yeah. Made so it. I mean, I'm sure we could find like some dude somewhere, somewhere. but yeah. So, so on that level, it, it makes it very, it makes it even more important that, that anybody who is put on trial is given the right to um, see who is testifying against them, to ask them questions, to to really um, test the quality of the uh, the material that that's against them. Yeah. I mean, it's it it's kind of fundamental that this is a fair trial. Yeah, yeah, and it it already has the kind of look against it because of the because of the Dutch system. I'm not saying it's not fair. I'm just saying that the Dutch are so convinced are that... Are we going to say mean things about the Dutch? Because I am very yeah. interested. <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> In a bit, like, I'm I'm worried that the Dutch authorities are so convinced of how fabulous their law system is that they kind of have blinders about how bad it looks on an international yeah. scale and people who are not used to this kind of trial. Um And they seem to be quite cavalier about, you know, yes, this is the way we always do it, so we're going to do it like this. Are uh, you saying that the Dutch are being somewhat arrogant about their own superiority? I mean, that's not a personality <laughs> trait any of us have ever seen in this country. <laughs> I think it's just that they can't imagine that people do things differently. And would look at this as yeah. maybe that it's not as transparent as it could be because yeah. they're just like, but all our our judges yeah. are wonderful. And this reminds me of, I remember when I started working for an international news agency and I went to some kind of big demonstration and they're like, how many people were there? And, I, you know, I was very Dutch, so I asked the police, and they're like, oh, there's 30,000 people. So I put in my story, you know, police says there's 30,000. And, of course, I get a call back from my then French, like, bureau chief going like, what did the protesters say? I was like, what do you mean? It was like, well, we don't give just police figures. We have to know what the protesters said. So, of course, okay, I go back and I call the protesters and I say, how many people were there? And, they, and the protesters told me, what did the police say? <laughs> and I said, 30,000. Yeah, we think 30,000. Which yeah. shows how much trust there is in the there system. There is in the system, exactly. yeah. In the Netherlands. And, uh, I mean, the trial is being held in the Netherlands. Yeah. They put a huge amount of time, money and effort because the prime minister yeah. promised that there would be justice. I mean, yeah. this was an absolute promise. I mean, give them some kind of um, kudos yeah. for actually going through, making it as good as, as it can be. Yes, agreed, the rest of the world won't understand it entirely, but, you know, it is really being done to the highest possible Dutch standards. I'm just doing devil's advocate it's stuff fine. here. It's fine. Someone has to defend the Dutch. Yeah, no, it, is, it is, and I think yeah. that's the reason to have it in the Netherlands. That's also the reason this is, to I have think, my next now. question. Why yeah. is it here? Like, why are we having this trial here? This is a crash that took place in Ukraine. Why isn't Ukraine trying this? And it's not even KLM, it's, the, Dutch, yeah, the it's, Dutch airline. It's a Malaysian airline. Yeah. The reason is that, I mean, like you, I'm sure, like Stephanie, I'm sure, I am one degree away from somebody who died in yep. the crash. There were nearly 200 Dutch people who died in this crash. Yeah. I mean, and per, per population, after, that's higher than the number yeah. of people that died but in 9-11. I don't know, but for me, the morning after, the number of people amongst my colleagues who said, I know somebody yeah. and who were in tears. 
Yeah. So I mean, I I knew nobody yeah. on the on on the planet. I did, myself. and I had only lived in the Netherlands for like a couple of years yes. at this point. I mean, it's so, such a large so it is group a of huge, people. Plus, you've got the fact that the Dutch proclaim themselves as this center of uh, peace, justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've got international law institutions here. If the, the Dutch were not to pursue justice for this, I mean, really, uh, they put a really big effort in pursuing justice, and that there was there was talk about having it as an international tribunal, yeah. but. At, it being very practical and very Dutch, uh, setting up an international tribunal takes a lot of time and money, and the Dutch oh. already had the infrastructure yeah. to try international crimes, and it's set up and the laws are in place, and so it could kind of easily be folded into that, uh, come to that, that under the Dutch laws, if the victims are of Dutch nationality, you can have universal jurisdiction cases here, which means that wherever it happens, if it's like big enough crimes, they can be tried here. And there's also the thing that if you have an international tribunal, in a way, like the ma- the sentences are sometimes lower because like the worst thing for an international tribunal is genocide. Yeah. So that's where you put life sentence. So then, you know, the everything murder, is down everything from is that. down from so there. So could end up with not such a great... Exactly. Uh, and so the, the yeah. reason, uh, one of the reasons also is that probably the sentences would be higher if you have it in a Dutch case than if you make it an international case because, you know horrific as it is, the murder of 290 plus uh, people doesn't register as high as, uh, as for example, genocide or widespread war crimes. It's, it's, it's slower on the international scale and international sentences are usually a bit lower than you would get in domestic uh, cases. Mm-hmm. And there, in the Dutch case, you can get life for just one murder. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we saw this at the Myanmar case at the ICJ, where they had people who were there arguing that they basically had only killed, what, 10,000 people, and so that this wasn't enough to really, like, qualify as genocide. That wasn't enough people that had been killed, yeah. which yeah. is... Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of discussion about what actually is genocide. It right. has nothing to do with numbers, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It's all about intent and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, let's pull it away from that yeah, yeah. genocide discussion. What what strikes me with the decision to have it here in the Netherlands, um, with the Dutch really in charge, uh, I understand pragmatically, it, it makes a lot of sense, is that so often the Dutch agree to have things here, but fundamentally they don't pay. Yeah. Um, they say, yes, have the International Criminal Court, but somebody else is going to pay for the building. Somebody else is paying for security. Somebody else is paying for this. And the other, the Kosovo Tribunal, which, has, which is gradually starting up here. Um, somebody else is paying. The Lebanon Tribunal, uh, the UN's paying part of it. The Lebanese are meant to pay. This is a very typical Dutch thing. Yeah, it's, yeah we want to have it. And we're, I mean, they give huge amounts of support. I mean, they do pay in all kinds of other ways. Sure. They get a lot of kudos. This is like, oh my God, the Dutch paying. This is it. This yeah. is interesting. This is really serious. Yeah. 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 If, if we're going to pay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, you we know, know, we know about the Dutch. Yeah. If, the, if the Dutch are paying like, for something, we know yeah. it's serious. So does that mean that just normal Dutch criminal law is in application here? They are not relying on treaties. They are not relying on some sort of international law jurisdiction. Like what is, what are they being charged with and how how does that play out? Stephopedia. Stephopedia yes. here, they, yeah. They are, uh, so it is entirely under Dutch law. There were some treaties uh, done to make parts of this trial possible, but that only relates to some changes in the law were held that you could have parts of the things in English with English uh, simultaneous translation. And I think it's something to do also with cooperation with Ukraine and possibly uh, people serving their sentences in other countries than Mm -hmm. the Netherlands. But in essence, 
all the laws that are being used here are is Dutch law. And what's interesting, uh, even more experts than me tell me, is that they have been charged with murder and also something else in the Dutch uh, legal system, which is um, deliberately uh, shooting down a plane. Yeah. Okay. Thereby killing people. Yeah. And these are two things that are very much in the Dutch uh, legal system, and they both uh, carry a life sentence. And a, and a high like monetary uh, fine, but um, they are actually not tried with war crimes or crimes against yeah. humanity. And the interesting bit about that is that if you try somebody for murder, um, you are not saying that this is an international armed conflict. And so it seems, for what my experts tell me, the the way these people are charged means that they're not going to argue about whether it's an international armed conflict. Because if you do say it's an international armed conflict, then you have uh, people who are in the fighting, and there are some uh, exceptions. Like if you're fighting but you're doing it proportionately, then it's not. Uh, then maybe if you shoot down a plane, that's just collateral damage. Yeah, that's the kind of argument so you would see. Want to- open up the space to say this is on the basis that this is in an international armed conflict and therefore international humanitarian law comes into play which has all of these rules about exactly how far away how you target things and and mostly mostly it it grants certain immunities to fighting parties and by kind of not saying this is not an international armed conflict this is a normal kind of peacetime situation then it's always illegal to have an anti-aircraft Sure. and shooting a plane out of the sky because the situation yeah, but is never the, calls for aren't it. Aren't the lawyers going to, yeah. assuming that there are defence people, aren't the lawyers going to shoot that down? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, of course, the first thing that you would do as a lawyer, say uh, I, there's two very obvious defences. Wasn't me, I wasn't there, I wasn't in control. And uh, I was even if I was there and I was in control, actually it was a completely legitimate action because we're in a war and we couldn't tell if it was a civilian or a military plane and you know we handled everything proportionately and this is just you know a tragic accident but not actually murder. Hmm. Okay, so on uh, Monday, what's what's going to happen? We're all going to turn up at the high security courthouse at Schiphol very early in the morning. And what can we expect? What can people expect who are sort of paying attention to this either in the newspapers or on Twitter? Well, they can expect uh, what the what the court's calling a stock taking, an inventory session. Yeah. So we're going to oh, watch it. Who are shows we going to get any photos? Are we going to get any pics from that? Yeah. Are we going to, you know, what are you going to do as journalists? I don't know. Oh, I'm sure they're going to be, <laughs> be very grumpy pictures. about the uh, quality yeah. of the coffee. I assume. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's going to be lots of people with cameras. I think there there are some very vocal and visual uh, members of the uh, victims' families yeah. who I'm sure are going to take this opportunity to talk, uh, which uh, yeah. which they do in a lot. So I think we'll see those on the news, the Dutch news. I often see those um, that kind of sketch people, people yeah. who actually draw from inside. Is that the kind of rule? Uh, yes. So inside the court, well, there's going to be images from inside this courtroom. It's going to be on. Uh, it's going to be live streamed. It's going to be live streamed, but they don't show the suspects. Yeah. They're... So uh, it's going to be live. What you can expect is you're going to see the judges and you're going to see the prosecutor, and the prosecutor has to say what they are provisionally charged with, how the investigation is going, and what else they want to kind of investigate. And we're going to see if defense lawyers show up. They can also be filmed. How many judges? Three, five. Three, uh, three judges and two reserve judges okay. in case one somebody gets sick. Yeah. they just don't want to have to do it over again. Exactly. Yeah. Very sensible. Yeah. Okay. And then, are, are you both going? 
I yep. will be there bright yes. and early. Wow. Yes. But you're expecting just to be a sort of a repetition of what we already know, basically, to start with? Well, in the sense that we don't quite know what they're being charged with because in the Dutch system they don't have to say it until like the very end and, yeah. it, and it's flexible. So we have this thing that says, you know, these two charges, but it doesn't have any of the kind of uh, groundwork of why. Yeah. And so what I'm hoping is that the prosecutor will lay out, this is like in sketching out, this is the case. But I've also heard from Dutch media that maybe the prosecution or the judge to kind of make a statement will read out all the names of all the victims. Yeah which is going to take a yeah, long time. Yeah, I've heard that too, so that will probably take a long time. But you don't know. Yeah, I mean, you. We they have two weeks of scheduling blocked off for this, so next week and then the two weeks after that, there's like a break, a week break in between, but it, it's not like we have a schedule for like when certain people will be saying things or what's going to happen. It's just sort of like block your calendar for these two weeks and we're going to figure it out as we go. And that, that's two weeks worth of hearings it's two weeks worth of like time in that, yeah. yeah so i expect my expectation which is not the finger rack which is like me doing a stab in the dark i think we'll have about three days of where we are who's yeah. in who's who who's coming who's showing up and then if they're going to do the trial in absentia for one or more suspects the judge has to rule on that so i expect there will be a couple of days where we kind of take inventory see who shows up and then there will have to be a ruling on how to continue and so then i expect a couple of days break and then a decision uh, which usually takes a week yeah for the dutch court to say we could go on with this yeah. trial in absentia and then, and then uh, there's another couple of hearings blocked off in june and so you know, theoretically, they could start with the actual trial in June. I'm not expecting that at all because I'm expecting if the defense shows up, they will have questions. They will come with, we want this witness to yeah. be heard and all that. And that has to be planned. And those witnesses are probably in Ukraine or Russia. Yeah. So I expect that September, I think. Then you'll have so then you'll have another kind of scheduling technical hearing in June. Like, where are we now? What's everybody doing? And then they can maybe set something again then in August you have another round and then maybe in September you have another round so it's it's going to be a lot of technical it's who's really, doing what I mean it really just reminds me so much of every other trial I've had to cover which yeah. you two are so experienced yeah. as well of like everybody is fascinated and you get mass coverage on yeah. the first day and then apart from us more technically focused yeah. long-term journalists everybody else disappears I think everybody will be there the end. first maybe day or two and then by the following week it'll be like me and Stephanie yeah. and like four people from some Dutch newspapers and but like that's it. I'm yeah. amazed that they're maybe a Malaysian. Maybe yeah. yeah maybe Ukrainian. Maybe Ukrainian. Yeah. But we yeah. don't or cover Australian. this stuff normally yeah. like yeah. this this kind of technical procedural hearing it's very rare for us to cover it in yeah. this instance. Yeah. Usually we go we also kind of say that the trial starts when they have the opening statements. Yeah. yeah. Which in Dutch is the, when they have the inhoudelijke yeah. behandeling and everything for us before is like pro forma or technical or yeah. pre-trial. so big. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, so big. And, and, and the way the yeah. Dutch system works is that once you start having days in court, yeah. the trial is like officially underway, mm. which we kind of fudge in international. Yeah. We, so we say it starts when they have the opening statements. Um, 
So, but that's, yeah, and that's a ways off. And sometimes, I mean, I was just at this Taki hearings for two days. Could and you just explain what that is? This is the um, the Dutch, the most wanted man in the Netherlands that they picked up in Dubai. He's a drugs criminal guy and supposedly is running this, like, sort of Moroccan, Marco Mafia, they call it, like, gang of people. So they're trying 17 people for uh, some, there's some murders, there's some attempted murders, there's some conspiracy to commit murder. There, uh, there seems to, there's a lot of charges floating around. And that's very high security as it's, well. Yeah, because that, of partly there's been an assassination yeah, because they, of, a, of, of a, a lawyer. lawyer um, which is a huge evidence. deal. That is like not a thing. I, you know, I think some people unfortunately come from places where it's like not unusual to have threats against the judiciary. But in the Netherlands, that was really a thing that ne- had, doesn't happen. Um, they've also killed like a, the bro- the witness of a, the brother of one of the witnesses. I mean, there's been a lot of violence associated with this. So how many high security places are there in the Netherlands to hold these kind of trials? Well, there's basically two. There's the bunker in Amsterdam and the high security courthouse at Schiphol. Um, and Rotterdam they, is slightly high security, yeah, but not and, as high security as the bunker. And you can apparently do some extra security measures in The Hague because they're moving the Wilders trial appeal, which has been ongoing for oh, all of eternity. Big political personalities here in the Netherlands. Right. And that trial has been at the high security courthouse, mostly because of threats against Wilders, but because of the MH17 trial, they've had to move this. And so they're going to move it to a courthouse in The Hague where they say that they can try to, they're going to take extra security precautions, which Mm. probably just means keeping the public out, I suspect. So It's just extraordinary, isn't it? That, uh, that, I mean, partly the the Schiphol, is that partly because of the Lockerbie uh, trial that that's why they've got this uh, this space at, at Schiphol. Or that, I thought that was at Camp Zeist. Yeah, no, Lockerbie else. was at Camp Zeist. Uh, I think the Schiphol was purposely built, and it's in a super secure location because it's next to the kind of penitentiary in Schiphol where people who are being deported from the Netherlands yeah. forcibly mm-hmm. are kept. So, so it's easier, very easier yeah. to have it. It's very isolated, mm-hmm. and uh, the bunker, which it's the weirdest it's courtroom, so weird. It is the weirdest courtroom in the Netherlands. It's in the middle of this. So it's like an Austrian store, but it's in the middle of this, like, bedrijventerrain, so yeah. you have, like... So, there's, uh, like, a media uh, like, mark like, yeah, across like, the there's street. There's, like, Hermann's it's, window glazing. Yeah. Yeah. So where I go to get the dogs cleaned. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, cleaned. Yeah. That kind of thing. Exactly. exactly. Okay. And it doesn't look like a bunker. It looks like a rundown <laughs> elementary school. It's exactly. very strange, like... But it is heavily secure. Well, it's the thing, How do you notice that these places are so secure? Well, I because mean, there's a get, lot of people with guns, basically, yeah, out okay, front. But, I mean, for example, going to the International Criminal Court or any of these courts, I'm used to, um, I'm, I'm not strip shirt. Yeah, but you go through metal detectors, you can only yeah, yeah, go no, in with accreditation. It's, so it's, it's similar, amazing. yeah, it's yeah. similar. So they, they were, they're always being very apologetic at yeah. Ostorp, where they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you have to go through you all these You have to take off your belt, you have to and do I was this. Like, well, you know, this is a standard issue at yeah. the Yugoslav Tribunal. Like, so, so in yeah. that sense, it's just because it's it's not, I mean, again, one of the values of the Dutch is this openness. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so... Uh, justice is seen to be done yeah um so that that's the sense that that because they're putting restrictions in that that that's what makes it higher security i think the Ostorp is also more protectable because it's uh, kind of like a little island sort right. of like there's just canals kind of around it so you okay. can sort of because okay. like when i was there the police were stopping yeah. everyone coming on and off and you had to like okay. show i you couldn't even get onto this little like sort of man-made created okay 
piece of land. Yes, you have to. So you can you can you can lock it off more. It's, it's yeah. a bit like the. I want to see some videos of you getting in. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I don't know if they'll let me do that. But at but at Schiphol, it's it's also it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. You can only really get there by this one special bus. There is some parking, but you have to have permission to park on the grounds, and then you yeah. kind of you kind of come in and like there's there's this like the building is like all the way at the other end. It's like yeah. this very large building. You go all the way to the other end. And they have one of these like rotating door things where like everyone stands in line out front. One person goes in, the door shuts behind you, the door opens before you, then you go through security and they like check your ID, check your name, and then they like let you in. And like if the thing that I found the most interesting when I was at the high security courthouse for the first time is that when you go into the actual courtroom, the doors are probably like 10, 12 inches thick. Like just to stop. Just, just to stop. Yeah, there's nothing getting in yeah. and out of there. Yeah. Um, so it's, they have clearly, and I'm sure, you know, and they have these I'm security sure guards with, that, that we, we don't, don't know. know yeah. Um, you know, the security guards rotate, like they just, every 15 minutes, they're getting up and coming in and out, which like yeah. as someone from a military family, you sort of know that this yeah. is like kind of the best way right. because yeah. if people sit for tired. too long, they get distracted. Yeah. The, yeah. the other thing that I wanted to ask you about in terms of what to expect here in the Netherlands is, I mean, yeah, as I said, everybody's affected to some degree. Do you expect some kind of blanket coverage across? Will we have kind of? Will I will I tune into the television and see um, somebody like the expert that we had, Marika Dehome, because um, we had her on our podcast? Mm. Will she be commenting commentating live to the live stream yes. to tell everybody what's going on? Well, I we talked to her uh, with the Foreign she's Press a, Association. Just, just to say, she's a professor at a professor at uh, Amsterdam University. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and she she's looked at all of this partly for the Dutch government, partly for herself. So she's she I, I know she yeah I know that she's been uh, so the NOS has uh, kind of contracted her to comment on the trial okay. all of the first day because yeah. uh, when we asked her like are you available for comment on the first day she's like so, well the NOS probably monopolized me so she's probably going to be so in the studio explaining okay. everything yeah. yeah. In the way that it works, I mean, I, I don't know for sure that this is how it worked for MH17, but in other trials that are there, the only the video camera that's in the courtroom is from the NOS. So the NOS, and then they share their video footage. They're like sort of obliged to share their footage. So I suspect we will see some, you know, judges filing in or like that kinds of like B-roll stuff yeah, at least. I, they have very specific things. So yeah. it's very, um, they have uh, they have a live stream and you're going to get the, and there's several, uh, and they have a, an organization that makes that and makes that available to the to the uh, news agencies, but you also have, because in Dutch trials, you cannot show everybody on TV, yeah. so you can only show official process parties. Yeah. And so uh, they're gonna be, you can show the lawyers, you can show the prosecutors, and you can show the judges, but you cannot show the suspects, and you cannot show the, uh, the audience, the yeah. public. But um, because not everybody can be in the courtroom and there's like 500 journalists accredited yeah. for this, they're going to have two types of footage. So in the press center, oh, there's okay. also going to be a live feed, yeah. which will be of it all, so which will be of it all so that you, you can, can describe it. Yeah. You can do reactions. You can, if there are suspects, because we always do that journalist thing yeah, of like he they looked, wore a blue suit. They yeah. wore, yeah, yeah, looked in a blue suit, looked intense as the charges yeah. were read, showed no emotion, <laughs> showed no emotion, uh, was very stoic. Yeah, so, like, so yeah. the it's cliche. It's, yeah. yeah, you so just the press com yeah. like stoic yeah. and try to pick a different yeah. word for this article. The the press center will have that feed. Yeah, uh, that's not what will be shown. No, and like and they're okay. and they're super uh, vigilant that we as journalists do not make recordings of okay. the press center because also. You 
you cannot, if suspects were to talk or if even uh, victims or families of victims yeah. were to talk, unless they give their uh, express consent that you yeah. can hear their voices. You're not allowed to. You're not allowed no. to record okay. them either. So yeah. that's okay. going to be quite interesting in, in a journalist way yeah. how they police that. But so what you're going to see even, on TV is... I don't is know a, exactly if this will be how it is at MH17, but at other trials that I've been at where this, because the NOS is always there, the Dutch public broadcaster, they always are the ones that do the recordings and then they have to like share their recordings with all the other ones. If someone is speaking who doesn't give their consent, they have to like shut everything off. And so there's always this moment like where a witness is going to say something or a defendant wants to say something and then like... The, yeah, yeah, so then the judge will be like, okay, you got to turn everything off and like they, you know, they come out and they shut everything down and then yeah. they speak and again, then they do it all again. Again, what yeah. we're used to in covering yeah. different trials. Exactly. Interesting um, for everyone to realize the complexities of you guys covering this, yeah. of, of having to bear in mind the whole time what you can say, what you can't say, how to cover those gaps yeah. in some way in order to make it, make it, um, understandable um, yeah, yeah it, officially i think molly and i we have we've seen the charges but officially i think they're officially classified that document until the start of trial now yeah. luckily the prosecutors have said before what they say in the document yeah. so we can say it but otherwise we could be booted out yeah of the, yeah. yeah they'll kick yeah. you out of their like system their accreditation yeah. system if you say so. things that you're not meant to say yeah which is totally how it should be i, I want to just oh, point out that we're not feeling defensive about this i mean there's a lot of security concerns here no, i think there are also quite a lot of other people in the rest of the world really interested you're going to be chatting to some malaysian journalists aren't you stephanie yes on thursday the dutch government gave some presentation to malaysian journalists so i'm going to explain a bit of the trial and the dutch system and what to expect because Malaysia has a common law system, so I'm going to do yes, the whole that's thing. One of, that's one of the Brits. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can just send them the podcast. It'll be fine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I just imagine there'll be quite a few different journalists yeah. from different parts of the world who will be around. So yeah. maybe I'll see you on CNN. You'll see me. Whatever, Always. You know. I, I, the first time I went to the high security courthouse, I, I didn't realize that they were going to take pictures because Wilders was there and that they were he was allowing them to take photos of him and that, that I accidentally like sat like right behind him so I'm like in every shot like you can see me the builder supporter <laughs> the, exactly because all the other journalists knew this and like sat like sort of away where you wouldn't end up in a photograph but like I didn't know so it's just like a picture of builders and then there's like his uh, lawyer Knopes and then like my head in the middle like two rows back <laughs> in like every photo that's when like when I got all these calls because I was wearing a red jacket when I was going to the Karadzic uh, sentencing yeah and Karadzic I, being and, uh, uh, Yugoslav tribunal yeah. Uh, yeah, the uh, former Bosnian Serb uh, uh, government leader, yeah. yeah, and and all my friends in the Balkans were watching this live coverage, and I was apparently walking back and forth behind this and they could see this red jacket, yeah. which really stands out on TV. And so yeah. I got all these calls, these calls like, "I see you walking around there, yeah. dressed down." <laughs> well, I'll be I'll I'll be wearing my standard black, so yes. maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll put my hair up in an effort to be slightly less recognizable. <laughs> She so has bright red hair. I do have bright red hair. <laughs> and everybody's going to Google the Gil Wilders picture. The Wilders that. picture, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Who, who is this woman that's supporting Wilders and also is involved yeah. in MH17? Have we, have we done all of Molly's questions yet? I oh, have no. I have one oh, last one, which is why are we having a trial at all, as opposed to like some sort of official inquiry, something that you would see in Parliament? I mean, they could also have had... 
some of these expert witnesses come testify and then you could also broadcast this live to people. I mean, wh- why a trial? I think there's two 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 reasons why they're doing it. One, it's purely legal that if you get uh, a sentence, a, a conviction for this, you can use that as leverage to get kind of arbitration and get, uh, if you do sentence uh, at the end Russian nationals for this crime, you could use that as leverage to get an arbitration going and maybe get some damages from the Russian government, mm-hmm. for example. Okay. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think this is very much about the truth-seeking element and this idea that the truth will come out in a trial and by having this trial the victims can also participate and judges actually ruled on it and it's uh, adversarial so you have a defense and uh, and uh, and the prosecution and therefore like the outcome will be more balanced and it will be more acceptable to everybody that we did look into mm-hmm. this vigorously and we decided this. I think there's also a third part which is the political side okay. which is that, that the Prime Minister promised justice justice and justice with a small j or with a capital j yeah. has to equal something more than just an, an inquiry. inquiry we end up with inquiries and parliamentary this that and the others and great and good doing their stuff in the netherlands all the time nobody yes. i mean yeah it th- changes things yeah. but it doesn't change things yeah. whereas a trial has i think politically it's more risky, yeah. but it also has more weight. Yeah, yeah. And, and just politics doesn't seem as impartial as a judicial ruling. Mm-hmm. There is yeah. a great faith in the Dutch justice system and that they do eventually have an impartial ruling. And politics, you know, that's always iffy. Yeah. Um, would you say there's any other reason? I, I think the, the victims seem to want it. At least I, I, I've done a couple of interviews and I've seen a lot of the interviews with them and a number of them, I mean, I, I suspect because... People think, like Stephanie said, that, you know, the justice system is the pinnacle of deciding these kinds of things and that this is what the victims want. This is what they're turning to in sort of this, yeah, their their desire for justice and they see justice as a a courtroom. So I I suspect that also plays a role. Yeah. On your guys' podcast, you always ask three questions. So I'm going to ambush you with your guys' own questions. (laughs) No. So the first question is, what does everyone get wrong about the work that you do? Well, my problem is that I've got various split Yeah, hats. you're very busy. I, I, just, I, I work for lots of different people and I, I can't really... I find it very difficult to describe myself in that, that elevator pitch. So everybody assumes I'm X. Oh, you're a journalist. Yeah. Yeah, but in this context... Yeah. I'm actually I'm project managing yeah. or I'm I'm teaching people or I'm a campaign specialist. So yeah. That's what they get wrong for me. I think for a lot of the, the being a journalist and then working for Reuters seems rather glamorous, but a lot of time is just me kind of Googling <laughs> like a mad person, just like everybody just else. Just like reading the Wikipedia entry. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and though I do know a lot about it because I follow these cases and it is interesting, there's also just a lot of kind of mad research on the yeah. internet, just like everybody else. One of my um, favorite cartoons that um, I was given when I first started working at the BBC by, by an old friend I think it's a Peanuts one It's like, uh, and it's, uh, I'm going to be a journalist today, uh, what shall I be a specialist in? And he's got a dart and a whole list of subjects <laughs> throw and you just throw it at you know, it's so true. today I've got to be a specialist in this, this, yeah. this so that's one of the joys of journalism Yeah, it is, it's very, very true So is there something I should have asked you guys uh, that I didn't? 
Favorite cookies? Favorite cookies? Okay. <laughs> what are uh, your favorite cookies, as Janice? Much, uh, as much chocolate as possible. Okay. Um, triple chip. I mean, you know, I pointed it to Stephanie when we were on our way here. You know, there was the Albert Heim triple chocolate chip, but she chose the bloody strope waffles. Well, I wanted to get the lavender strope waffles because it's a running gag, but well, your Albert Heim only had the salted caramel ones. Which... But, but maybe, Stephanie, there was a serious question that she should have asked, but I have no idea. I think you, we took over the interview. Yeah, you guys and, took it and, over. And just and just said what we wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, and so have you read or seen anything recently that you would like to recommend to people? Maybe you can pick one, like something that's maybe about MH17 or international law and then something that's like not because the world is a sad place and I want recommendations for like not sad stuff. I have next to my bed and I'm trying to read now a um, an academic book Ooh. but about uh, the Rwanda Tribunal, okay. which is always for me like the tribunal that nobody thinks about the yeah. talks about and it's where I cut my teeth in, yeah. in this this field. It's called Genocide Never Sleeps. So the name of the author is Nigel Questionmark, can't remember. Okay. But I asked him, will you send me a copy of this so I can review it? So I'm desperately now looking for a place that can to actually publish it. a review. Yeah. Um, and anything else, I'm afraid I am still deep in the thing that I wouldn't reveal on our podcast, yes. which is... What is it? Can we get Grey, you to admit it? Grey's Anatomy. Oh. Um, you know, <laughs> Wait, so I just saw something on Twitter about this. They're like killing somebody off or someone's oh, retiring. I have no idea. Or like, I'm okay. season 10 at okay. So it's just hospital soap opera. My mum was a nurse. She loved hospital yeah. melodrama. She like watch ER and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm following in the footsteps. Okay. I uh, I would definitely recommend the Bellingcat podcast about yeah. MH17 because it very much lays out all the evidence and how the investigation was. So I think we're going to hear a lot of that back. And that for me is one of the research things I did for MH17 is listen to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing not related to, podca- uh, to MH17 at all and to get my mind off things is that... Uh, I recently got some books back from my brother, uh, who, which is from an author called Kinky Friedman, which is very bizarre Texas detective yes, Carl Hyacinth yeah, thing. I've seen these before. Yes, yeah. a lot of I'm, armadillos I'm and weird, weird, wonderful Americana. And so I'm, I'm reading it. that uh, back again. That's so, great. Um, that's what I do to not think about war crimes. That's that's a good way to not think about war crimes. <laughs> that and bored panda because they have all these animals. Oh, the pictures. animal videos. Yeah. yeah. So I, we, on the train here, I watched 20 pictures of disapproving corgis. <laughs> That sounds like it's right up my alley, too. So if you're interested in international justice issues, or even if you're just curious about the many, many international cases that take place here in the Netherlands, trials at the International Criminal Court, the Global Court for Atrocities Crimes, or at the International Court of Justice, the UN's highest court, you should listen to Asymmetrical Haircuts. Uh, You can find the podcast on any respectable podcasting app. You can also follow them on Twitter at AsymmetricalH. Uh, And you can follow Janet on Twitter at at Janet Anderson. And you can follow Stephanie on Twitter at VDayBear. Stephanie. Um, but we will link to all of that in the liner notes because that's always impossible to figure out. Uh, thank you guys for uh, for coming down. It was really oh, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for inviting us. It wasn't quite as overwhelming as as, uh, as I was fearing because of my lack of massive expertise in, in this area. But I, and I'm really enjoying the um, the spookiness. The spookiness of, this, of, of the studio. I love the whole studio. Plus, I'm being a listener of Dutch news. I was very excited to get to meet. Trubia. 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 Trubia's here. He's, he's sleeping on the couch, so he is also present on, on this version. So thank you guys for coming. Thank you. Thank you. 
always news. Isn't it's it? always Hugo de Groot news. He's the dick lawyer of the Golden Age. 